the popular columnist whose voice of Broadway appears in papers coast to coast, Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. A young man who's just returned from Africa for making a picture called Marrakesh, Mr. Tony Randall. Welcome to the end of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. By the time she died in 1965, Dorothy Kilgallen had made a name for herself as a journalist, a radio broadcaster, and as a popular game show panelist. But she planned to become known as something else. The reporter who revealed the real story behind the John F. Kennedy assassination. A relentless journalist, unafraid to speak truth to power, Kilgallen was deep into her own investigation about the president's death when she died. She found the idea that Lee Harvey Oswald had killed Kennedy alone, quote, laughable, and spent 18 months speaking to sources and digging into the assassination. Before she could publish anything, however, Kilgallen died from an overdose of alcohol and barbiturates. But was it accidental, or had something more sinister taken place? And what happened to Dorothy Kilgallen's pages and pages of research? Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. On July 3, 1913, Dorothy Kilgallen had a reporter's nose from the beginning. Her father was a star reporter with the Hearst organization, and Kilgallen followed in his footsteps. She cut her teeth by covering big stories of her day, including President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first presidential campaign in 1932 and the 1935 trial of Richard Haptemann, the carpenter convicted of kidnapping and killing the Lindbergh baby. 
But Kilgallen really made a name for herself in 1936 when she competed in a race around the world with two other reporters. The 23-year-old received special attention as the only woman in the three-way race. Though she came in second, Kilgallen was frequently mentioned by her employer, the New York Evening Journal, and later turned her experience into a book called Girl Around the World. From there, Kilgallen's star skyrocketed. She started writing a column for the New York Journal American called Voice of Broadway. She hosted a radio show called Breakfast with Dorothy and Dick with her husband and became a popular panelist on the TV show What's My Line? Still, Dorothy Kilgallen remained a reporter at heart. She frequently wrote about the nation's biggest news story, including the 1954 trial of Sam Shepard, an Ohio doctor accused of murdering his pregnant wife. Kilgallen later got Shepard's conviction overturned when she revealed that the judge had told her that the doctor was, quote, guilty as hell, end quote. But nothing stirred her reporter's instincts more strongly than the assassination of President John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963 in Dallas, Texas. From the beginning, Dorothy Kilgallen was determined that the story of the president's death must be told once and for all. Quote, the American people have just lost a beloved president, end quote. Kilgallen wrote one week after the JFK assassination, according to the New York Post. Quote, it's a dark chapter in our history, but we have the right to read every word of it, end quote. Here's Arthur Mark Shaw, who wrote The Murder of Dorothy Kilgallen, the reporter who knew too much. She started writing columns uh, right after uh, JFK died. And let me explain why she launched this investigation, because JFK were personal friends. They knew each other from watering holes in, in famous watering holes in New York City. She had, uh, he had been to her home and played charades there. They were very close friends. And at one point, JFK invited her to the White House, and she took her little son, Carrie, who was in the third grade. And Pierre Salinger set it up so that JFK would meet with them in the library. He made a big fuss over Carrie, uh, praised him for the letters he brought from his third grade class. And so when JFK died, after she cried her eyes out, uh, for her friend being killed, uh, it, it was personal because uh, of what she had done for Carrie. In fact, in the books, uh, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much and also Denial of Justice, I uh, say that Dorothy wrote in one of her columns, uh, what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy, praising the letters that he brought from his third grade class. This is the man who was killed in Dallas. So you would learn if you know more about Dorothy that when she went after a case, uh, went after something, uh, she went full bore. She had the best sources. Uh, they called her the most powerful female voice in America. The New York Post did. Hemingway said she was the greatest female writer in the world. I mean, she was a big deal. Gallon had a good contact within the Dallas Police Department. He gave her a copy of the original police log that chronicled the minute-by-minute -minute activities of the department on the day of the assassination as reflected in the radio communications. This enabled her to report that the first reaction of Dallas Police Chief Jesse Curry to the shots in Dealey Plaza was, quote, get a man on top of that overpass and see what happened up there, end quote. Kilgallen pointed out that he lied when he told reporters the next day that he initially thought the shots were fired from the Texas School Book Depository. Kilgallen also had a source within the Warren Commission. 
This person gave her a 102-page segment dealing with Jack Ruby before it was published. She published details of this leak, and so therefore ensuring that this section appeared in the final version of the report. The FBI investigated this leak, and on September 30, 1964, Kilgallen reported in the New York Journal American that the FBI, quote, might have been more profitably employed in probing the facts of the case rather than how I got them, end quote. In another of her stories, Kilgallen claimed that Marina Oswald knew a great deal about the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Kilgallen said, quote, If she told the whole story of her life with President Kennedy's alleged assassin, it would split open the front pages of newspapers all over the world, end quote. Kilgallen's reporting brought her into contact with Mark Lane, who had himself received an amazing story from the journalist Thayer Waldo. He had discovered that Jack Ruby, J.D. Tippett, and Bernard Wiseman had a meeting at the Carousel Club eight days before the assassination. Waldo, who worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, was too scared to publish the story. He had other information about the assassination. However, he believed that if he told Lane or Kilgallen, he would be killed. Kilgallen's article on the Tippett, Ruby, and Wiseman meeting appeared on the front page of the Journal American. Later, she was to reveal that the Warren Commission were also tipped off about the gathering. However, their informant added that there was a fourth man at this meeting, an important figure in the Texas oil industry. Kilgallen published several articles about how important witnesses had been threatened by the Dallas police or the FBI. On September 25, 1964, Kilgallen published an interview with Aquila Clemens, one of the witnesses of the shooting of J.D. Tippett. In the interview, Clemens told Kilgallen that she saw two men running from the scene, neither of whom fit Oswald's description. Clemens added, quote, I'm not supposed to be talking to anybody. Might get killed on the way to work, end quote. Kilgallen was keen to interview Jack Ruby. She went to see Ruby's lawyer, Joe Tonahill, and claimed she had a message for his client from a mutual friend. It was only after this message was delivered that Ruby agreed to be interviewed by Kilgallen. The interview with Ruby lasted only eight minutes. No one else was there. Even the guards agreed to wait outside. Kilgallen said this about Ruby, quote, Jack Ruby's eyes were as shiny brown and white bright as the glass eyes of a doll, end quote. She went on to say, he tried to smile, but with his smile was a failure. When we shook hands, his hands trembled in mine ever so slightly, like the heartbeat of a bird, end quote. According to the book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, by Mark Shaw, Kilgallen found Ruby's child odd. Ruby seemed frightened but sane, and Kilgallen was surprised that his lawyer, Melvin Belli, planned to make an insanity plea. Kilgallen also wondered why Belli didn't fight harder to spare his client's life and was shocked when Ruby was sentenced to death. As Shaw notes, Dorothy Kilgallen left Ruby's trial more convinced than ever that a conspiracy had killed Kennedy. In her column on March 20, 1965, about a week after Ruby's sentencing, she wrote, quote, The point to be remembered in this historic case is that the whole truth has not been told. Neither the state of Texas nor the defense put on all of its evidence before the jury. Perhaps it was not necessary, but it would have been desirable from the viewpoint of all American people, end quote. Once again, here's Arthur Mark Shaw talking about Dorothy Kilgallen at the Ruby trial and some of the columns that she wrote concerning the JFK assassination. And so when she was at the Jack Ruby trial six days after, first she wrote a profile of Ruby called Ruby Stars at Last, which is incredible writing about who he was as she watched him across the courtroom. And then she started her, uh, her columns. The first one was the Oswald file must not close. Uh, she wrote a huge number of, of columns after that, but basically she didn't buy 
what J. Edgar Hoover was shouting, uh, which was the Oswald alone theory. And so she was going the wrong way on a one-way street. And after she interviewed Ruby then, she continued to investigate. But right at that particular point, she had put a target on her back because, uh, as I say, uh, she wasn't buying what, uh, what uh, Hoover was trying to sell, and it really put her in danger. And, and trying to figure out what happened back then. And they were all saying, you know, everybody wanted to seal that up. They wanted to believe it was Oswald. 1963, if you remember, was a tumultuous uh, year in the United States. A lot of um, things going on with uh, civil unrest and, and different kinds of things going on. And people just wanted to believe it was some low nut who killed uh, JFK, and that was the end of it. And so everybody missed it. And so the, the columnists didn't print anything. Uh, Dorothy was the only one uh, that did. And unfortunately, I think somewhat because she was a woman, somewhat because she was on the quiz show, uh, her, her columns weren't taken seriously at that particular time, and they certainly are today, that's for sure. Officially, Kilgallen never told anyone about what Ruby said to her during this interview, nor did she publish any information she obtained from the interview. In October 1965, Kilgallen told Lane that she had new information and she had a new informant in New Orleans. And so she ended up taking this trip to New Orleans, and that's where the danger uh, begins, because uh, she had a hairdresser she was very close to. He went with her to New Orleans, and then he says on a videotape that people can listen to, a uh, videotaped interview on uh, the DorothyKilgallenStory.org, that when they got there, she, said, she called him at the hotel and said, go back to New York City, don't tell anybody you were here, and don't ask any questions. While Dorothy Kilgallen had many celebrity friends, arguably her closest friend was Mark Sinclair, her main hairdresser. For years, he not only fixed her hair, but was a trusted ally whom she could speak with about private matters and know that Mark would never betray that trust. Sinclair was also a celebrity of sorts in his own right. His clients included the rich and famous, including Princess Margaret. Interviewed on videotape in the late 1990s and early 2000s, Sinclair adds much to a credible account of Kilgallen's life and times and her death. Here he is talking about the trip to New Orleans he took with her. Did Dorothy say that when she traveled with you in the future, she wanted to stay in a separate hotel? And she said that when we were in New Orleans. Uh, she came, she called me, and she, I went there to do her hair so she'd look better in the pictures that were being taken of her. And she called me and she said, you have your ticket, I want you to go back to New York, and I don't want you to ever tell anyone that you were here with me. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's say more about this. This happened, I'd say, approximately a month or six weeks before she died. Uh, you were in New York, and you got a phone call from her, and she said she was in New Orleans, right? No. She went down on one plane, and I went down on the other at the same time. And I stayed in a different hotel than she did. And uh, she told me we were going to have dinner that evening. And I'd done her hair and left the hotel and uh, was fooling around town. And she said, she called me, and she said, I want you to leave immediately. I don't want you to tell anyone you were ever here with me. I don't want anyone to know that you were ever here with me. And don't ask me any more questions. And I got on the plane and flew back to New York. Kilgallen began to tell friends that she was close to discovering who assassinated Kennedy. According to David Welsh of Ramparts Magazine, Kilgallen, quote, vowed she would crack this case wide open and it was going to shock the world, end quote. 
And another New York showbiz friend said Dorothy told him in the last days of her life, quote, in five more days, I'm going to bust this case wide open, end quote. Aware of what happened to the other two journalists working on the case, Bill Hunter, who was murdered on the 23rd of April, 1964, and Jim Coth, who was murdered on September 21st, 1964, Kilgallen handed a draft copy of her chapter on the assassination to her friend Florence Smith. Not only did Kilgallen continue to publicly air her doubts about the JFK assassination, but she also continued to investigate the president's death. As the New York Post reports, Kilgallen gathered evidence, conducted interviews, and traveled to Dallas and New Orleans to chase down leads. By the autumn of 1965, Dorothy Kilgallen seemed to feel that she was on the edge of a breakthrough. She had planned a second trip to New Orleans where she intended to meet an unnamed source in a, quote, very cloak and daggerish encounter. This story is not going to die as long as there is a real reporter alive, and there are a lot of them, Kilgallen wrote on September 3rd, 1965. But just two months later, this reporter was found dead at her Manhattan home. On November 8, 1965, Kilgallen was found dead in her New York apartment. She was fully dressed and sitting upright in her bed. The police reported that she had died from taking a cocktail of alcohol and barbiturates. The notes for the chapter that she was writing on the case had disappeared. Her friend, Florence Smith, died two days later. How convenient. The copy of Kilgallen's article was never found, and Kilgallen's conclusions will never be known. Her meticulous research into the Kennedy assassination went missing after her death. More than 50 years later, Arthur Mark Shaw expressed serious suspicions about Kilgallen's death. In his 2016 book, The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, Shaw made the case that Kilgallen had been murdered to stop her investigation into the Kennedy assassination. Ultimately, Shaw hypothesized that Dorothy Kilgallen had been circling the theory that the mob had something to do with Kennedy's death. He believes that she had determined that the New Orleans mobster Carlos Marcello had orchestrated the president's assassination and the CIA and FBI knew about the plot. Quote, whoever decided to silence Dorothy, I believe, took that file and burned it, end quote, Shaw told the New York Post. Shaw further explained that he started to investigate Kilgallen's death while researching a different book, one about Jack Ruby's attorney, Melvin Belli. During his research, he found that Belli had remarked after Kilgallen's death, quote, they've killed Dorothy, now they'll go after Ruby, end quote. Jack Ruby would die on January 3, 1967, shortly before he was set to go to trial after the Texas Court of Appeals overturned his death sentence. The official cause of death was pulmonary embolism supposedly related to Ruby's lung cancer. Some of Dorothy's friends also believed that Kilgallen had been murdered. Mark Sinclair was Kilgallen's personal hairdresser. He often woke Kilgallen in the morning. When he found her body, he immediately concluded she had been murdered. He would go on to say, several things looked odd. One, Kilgallen was not sleeping in her normal bedroom. Instead, she was in the master bedroom, a room that had not been occupied for years. Two, Kilgallen was wearing false eyelashes. According to Sinclair, she always took her eyelashes off before she went to bed. Three, she was found sitting up with the book, The Honey Badger, by Robert Ruach, on her lap. Sinclair claims that she had finished reading the book several weeks earlier, and she had discussed the book with Sinclair at the time. Four, Kilgallen had poor eyesight and could only read with the aid of glasses. Her glasses were not found in the bedroom where she died. And lastly, Kilgallen was found wearing a bolero-type blouse over a nightgown. Sinclair claimed that this was the kind of thing, quote, she would never wear to go to bed, end quote. 
Mark Lane also believed that Kim Gallen had been murdered. He said that, quote, I would bet you a thousand to one that the CIA surrounded her as soon as she started writing those stories, end quote. The game show What's My Line that Dorothy was such a big part of did a tribute to Dorothy on November 14, 1965. Here's just a brief excerpt of that telecast. These are sad days for us, as I'm sure they are for all those who learned about Dorothy Kilgallen's passing last Monday. Dorothy, Arlene, uh, Bennett and I have been together on Sundays for the better part of 16 years. We considered what we might do to express our sense of loss and to pay tribute to Dorothy in a special way. And in the end, we agreed with her good husband, Dick Colmar, that the best tribute to Dorothy would be to do what's my line, just as it was when she was here. That is what we will try to do. Thank you, John, and I just want to say that in the more than 15 Sundays, 15 years of Sundays that we've spent together on this program, uh, we have become uh, not just associates, but a kind of family. And so it is not so much as a co-worker uh, that we miss Dorothy, though certainly she was a game player that was better than almost all the rest of us. It is really as a family that we are saddened by her absence. Good night, Steve. Good night, Arlene. Uh, the fact that we didn't get any of the first three uh, contestants uh, tonight, John, establishes, as Arlene has indicated, that uh, even just purely as a game player, Dorothy is very dearly missed. But, of course, that's not a very important consideration. She's missed as a human being. The world knows her as uh, a very brilliant woman, very quick-minded and very intelligent, uh, the writer of a very fine newspaper column. And uh, But we, we all think it's more important that uh, she was also a very fine wife and a very fine mother. A fine human being, and we miss her in those capacities. Not kidding. Tonight I'm sitting in Dorothy's seat, but no one could ever possibly take her place. Good night, Bennett. Well, a lot of people knew Dorothy as a very tough game player. Others knew her as a tough newspaper woman. When she went out for a story, nothing could get in her way. But we got to know her as a human being, and a more lovable, softer loyal person, never lived, and we're going to miss it terribly. John? Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for being with us on What's My Line. Once again, here's Arthur Mark Shaw as he talks about Kilgallen's death. Dorothy Kilgallen was found dead in her Manhattan townhouse uh, in a bedroom she never slept in, uh, wearing her uh, high, uh, false eyelashes, a hairpiece, and uh, makeup she never wore to bed, in bed clothes she never wore to bed, uh, lying in bed and uh, basically uh, died right there. Uh, what happened after that is alarming. Right after uh, the body was found by the hairdresser, FBI agents, or those posing as FBI agents, charged into the, uh, into the home and confiscated all of her papers, documents, uh, everything, uh, her file about the JFK assassination investigation. 
Uh, after they left, the police finally came. They took one look at an empty secondol bottle, which is sleeping pills, and decided right away that she had overdosed, even though there was no evidence that she ever had a drug problem or that she was an alcoholic or anything like that. Uh, they basically just um, decided on the spot, you talk about rush to judgment, that she had died of an overdose. It was a, another celebrity who had done that and everything. The, 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 the terrible part of this is there was absolutely no investigation into Dorothy Kilgallen's death. And um, basically her, her file has never been found. Uh, and so basically Dorothy disappeared from the face of the earth until uh, 2018 when I'm pleased to say that I in some ways brought her back to life by publishing The Reporter Who Knew Too Much and uh, pr pr presenting to the, uh, to the public uh, all of this information that nobody ever knew about, including me through Dr. Cyril Weck and Dr. Michael Bodden and others who have looked at the autopsy uh, that was performed, the forensic evidence, uh, uh, witnesses uh, who, who talk about, uh, uh, you know, the, the autopsy was obviously very botched. They said there was only one barbiturate in Dorothy's uh, system. There were three. Uh, there were remnants on the glass uh, that was in her bedroom uh, showing uh, phenobarbital, uh, one of the three barbiturates, that somebody had, uh, we believe she was, what I believe has been proven, and, and the forensic scientists agree that she was poisoned, either at the Regency Hotel bar uh, the night before she died, uh, assisted by uh, the activities of a mystery man at the time, they called him, who I've identified as uh, Ron Pataki, a journalist friend of hers who's still alive and lives in Columbus, Ohio, and we need to talk about him a little bit, uh, or at home, uh, Pataki, we believe, uh, 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 you know, uh, accompanied her home. Uh, and, and at one of those two places, uh, those barbiturates, uh, the capsules were, uh, um, you know, uh, poured, uh, the ingredients were poured into a vodka and tonic, and that's what uh, caused the death of Dorothy Kilgallen. So there's all of the forensic evidence. There's all of the uh, proof showing she was in danger. Uh, the unusual, it was a, there's no question, I think most people around the world believe uh, there was a staged death scene there. You know, when you look at it, I look at everything as a former criminal defense lawyer having to do motive. And I'm doing the same thing in a, in a new book that I'm writing because I'm comparing uh, Dorothy Kilgallen's uh, death uh, connection to uh, Marilyn Monroe's and to JFK's. And in each situation, motive sticks out. Uh, Dorothy had um, opened her mouth uh, and let every, everybody know, including Marcello and everybody that was involved, I, we believe, in the assassination, that she was going to print all this in this book for Random House. They couldn't let her write that book, and, and that's why she was killed. And she told Charles Simpson, uh, if the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination, it would cost me my life. And she was dead shortly thereafter. And the American public's been brainwashed for the whole situation with regard to this Oswald alone thing. And so all of the other reporters and the jurors and everything uh, bought that uh, ludicrous theory. I'll tell you, it's perpetuated at the Sixth Form Museum at Daly Plaza in Dallas that I, that I finally figured out because I tried to give them about a year ago all of my material about Ruby or about Kilgallen, my papers, my research, everything else, and, and at first they really wanted them, and then they decided they didn't, and I figured out, if you go to that museum, it's basically a shrine to Lee Harvey Oswald. There's no evidence of the Ruby trial transcripts existing. There's nothing about Kilgallen. They don't allow anything in there, in that museum, that doesn't have to do with Oswald alone. 
you know, people ask me, why is all this important now, Russell? Well, it's all about history and distortions of history. And, and you know, we're really concerned in this country right now with regard to the education that children are getting, that they should know about black history. They should know more about white history. They should know all of those things. And in many schools, they still teach when they come to the uh, 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 JFK assassination, the Oswald alone theory. That's got to stop. That's got to stop. That's got to stop. Next week on The End of Innocence, the JFK assassination, it won't surprise you that more than six decades later, hundreds of people with some kind of link to the JFK assassination have died. All the Warren Commission members are dead. Almost all the doctors who tried to save his life are dead. Governor Connolly is dead. The assassin's assassin is dead. And the majority of witnesses on that fateful day are dead, most of them naturally surrendering to time. Time catches up with us all. But for approximately 100 of these people, it wasn't time that took them. Rather, it was unusual circumstances, unexplained suicides, and even cold-blooded murder that claimed far too many of these lives. We'll start taking a look at those starting next week. We'll see you then.